Well, good morning, and uh, I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5 as we come back to our study of this great gospel. And today we come to what is easily one of the most difficult subjects that you'll ever encounter in biblical theology and really practical theology. It's difficult in our modern context. It was difficult in the days even of Christ. And it has to do with the relationship of the gospel to the law, to the Old Testament law. It has to do more directly with Jesus' attitude toward the law in the Old Testament and how we should understand the law in light of His teaching, in light of His death, burial, and resurrection, and, and ultimately what is our responsibility as Christians regarding the law. These have been challenging questions really throughout the history of the church. As I mentioned, even in Jesus' own time, there were a number of controversies that arose as a direct result of His teaching and people's uh, attempts to place it in the context of the law. Even after Jesus' resurrection and after the apostles had uh, died and passed off the scene, it continued to be a struggle even in the early church. In fact, one of the well-known heretics of the second century, a man named Marcion, literally rewrote the New Testament in order to eliminate all references to Jewish Scripture and to remake Christianity after a completely Gentile fashion with no references to the law whatsoever. Even down to our own day, there are people who would encourage Christians to abandon the law, to forsake the law for all practical purposes, to do away with the Old Testament. Now these, um, these messages, it seems, have, have uh, been received by an, a generation, by an era which is all too ready to be skeptical not only of authority but to scorn rules. And anything that would call for a rejection of regulations and rules and laws... Anything that would advance the sort of absolute personal autonomy that, that those in the modern age long for, any of that sort of taps into the spirit of the age and finds a ready audience. And so it seems like as much as at any time, there are those who are promoting this idea that somehow we as Christians need to abandon the law, need to abandon the Old Testament, need to rid ourselves of it as some sort of unnecessary shackle. At the same time, there have always been those who on the other side clung to the law and clung to the Old Testament as a sort of a crutch, if you will, in their spiritual life. If not a crutch, at least a mask. They seek to uphold what they propose as righteousness, but in fact what they're really perpetuating is nothing more than a, a form of religion which according to the Apostle Paul is superficial, is void of power. It's useless, as he says in another place, in doing anything against the indulgences of fleshly lust. Paul even talks about this group of people in 1 Timothy chapter 1 when he says they desire to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they're saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. So they're, they're, they're proposing themselves as, 
as these erudite teachers. They're proposing themselves as experts in the law or experts in biblical theology. They're proposing themselves in all of these ways, but they really have no idea what they're talking about, Paul says. And you always had this sort of tension. You've always had this sort of debate going on ever since the time of Christ all the way up to our own. And it creates a kind of confusion for the average believer, the everyday believer, who opens up their Bible uh, on a day-to-day basis. They, they kind of know the layout. They understand that between the, the two covers of their Bible, the bulk of the pages are actually made up of the Old Testament. They understand in a very practical way that's what most of the Bible is, and yet they don't always know how to navigate it. They, all, they don't always know what it means for them. They don't always understand how it is supposed to be read and applied and useful and all of those things. Not only that, but they also are aware that the New Testament speaks frequently about the Old Testament in ways that seem to be discouraging. They know places like Galatians 5.18, if you're led by the Spirit, you're no longer under the law. Or Romans 6.14, sin will have no dominion over you since you're not under law, but under grace. Or Romans 10 verse 4, Christ is the end of the law for everyone who believes. There are, of course, other places. And sincere Christians read this and they don't quite know how to reconcile those statements with their Christian life and those statements with everything that they know about uh, the, the Bible, about the Old Testament. What does all that mean in relation to the Old Testament, in relation to the law? Well, we want to understand this as best that we can. And, and to do that, we come to one of the most meaningful texts in all of Scripture and in the teaching of Christ And we want to pay careful attention to what Jesus says here because he's dealing specifically with these issues, specifically with his own attitudes, his own sort of view, if you will, of the Old Testament. And to begin our time, I thought it would be helpful for us just to read these verses, verses 17 through 20, to hear what Jesus says here as it relates to... The Old Testament. He says in verse 17, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one iota, not one dot will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now this is a section that's very obviously bound together by discussions of the law and the prophets. Very very much brought together by the commandments, if you will, Jesus' attitude toward them and, and His prescription for them. It's also sort of bound together by discussions about the kingdom of heaven and those who are great in the kingdom of heaven and those who even enter the kingdom of heaven. 
But its overall theme is really Jesus' relationship to the law. And he's talking about it in two ways. First of all, we might say as it relates to himself, how he treats the law, how he views the law, how he responds to the law. And secondly, how it relates to others, how they should treat the law, how they should respond to the law, how they should teach the law. For our purposes, we'll break this down, we might say, into two primary discussions then. The first has to do with Christ and the law, and the second has to do with Christians and the law. What is Jesus teaching us here about himself and the law? And then secondly, really something we'll deal with next week, what does this have to say about us and the law, the Christian and the law? We can begin in verses 17 and 18 by looking at the first half of that, which is the issue of Christ and the law. Well, really the law and the prophets, because that's what he's talking about here. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. Now, Jesus says this because obviously there were some people who were thinking that. There were some people who were suggesting this. And when he says the law uh, here, or, or the law and the prophets, he's really talking about the entire Old Testament. Sometimes Jews would speak about it as simply the law. You see that in Scripture, particularly in the Gospel of John, where there's references to the law, but they're actually quoting from, for example, the Psalms. Or they might make reference to the law, but quote from the prophet Isaiah. So the law could be an all-encompassing term for the entire Old Testament, and so could the statement that Jesus says here, the law and the prophets. He uses this, by the way, over in chapter 7, verse 12, again, whatever you wish others to do for you, do also for them, for this is the law and the prophets. Or over in chapter 11, in verse 13, he says, for, the, for all the prophets and the law, uh, excuse me, all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. Or over in chapter 22, verse 40, when he's questioned about the greatest of the commandments, he says, for all the, uh, excuse me, for on, on these two commandments, that is loving God and loving others, depend all the law and the prophets. You can see it in other places when Nathaniel uh, found, or when Philip found Nathaniel in John chapter 1 and called, his, uh, uh, called him to come see Jesus, he says, we have found him of whom the law and the prophets wrote. When Paul goes into a synagogue in Acts 13, he and his companions are sitting there and it says, when they had, had finished reading the law and the prophets. And so you see this not in the, only in the lips of Jesus, but you see it throughout Judaism that this was a regular way of speaking about the law and the prophets. Even sometimes they would say the law, the prophets, and the writings. But all of it, just understand, all of it means the Old Testament. They, they didn't have a standardized way of speaking about the Old Testament, so they used these various designations. But what Jesus is really getting at, what he has in mind here, is the entire Old Testament. That which is the law and that which expounded it on the law, that is the prophets. This is the way a Jewish mind would think about the Old Testament. You had the foundation, which was Genesis through Deuteronomy, the Torah, the five books of Moses, the Pentateuch, whatever you might call it. You had the foundation in the law, and then you had everything that came after it, which wasn't disconnected, wasn't disjointed, but was actually an exposition of the law. 
It was the latter prophets who were expounding the law, applying the law, talking about the law in the light of their, their own contemporary times. They were using the law to confront the depravity and the indulgence and the greed and the injustice in their society. But all of it was going back to that original foundation. Same could be true of the Psalms. So here's Jesus speaking about all of this, the law, the prophets, the entire Old Testament. And and he begins speaking about it relative to himself, both negatively and positively. Negatively and positively. First of all, on the negative side, he says, look, do not think that I have come to abolish any of this. Do not think for a moment that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. Don't even let it enter your mind. Do not entertain the thought of the possibility that I could want to do away with or separate you from or somehow do a, 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 a make null and void the Old Testament. I would never do such a thing is the implication. The language in the Greek is very strong. As I mentioned, Jesus was saying this because there, was a, there were people who were suggesting it. It's not obvious as you read through the Gospel of Matthew, uh, just in terms of the chronology, but Jesus giving the Sermon on the Mount is actually well into his ministry at this point. He had already been ministering for almost two years. And now he had, he had come to this, this great time of teaching, but behind him had come all of these other events that had, had um, given some people the impression that he was against the Old Testament. He began his ministry with, of course, teaching and preaching in the synagogues. He had preached, of course, to a bunch of Samaritans, which many Jews thought was excluded because of the, the teaching of the Old Testament. He had made a whip and cleaned out the temple, which many people took to be an attack on the ceremonial system of the Old Testament. He had healed a man in Jerusalem on the Sabbath, which a lot of people thought undermined the Sabbath teaching of the Old Testament. He had been seen with his disciples plucking grains of head on the Sabbath, which again made people think that he was opposed to Sabbath law. And so all this stuff made people wonder and made people speculate if Jesus was really committed to the Old Testament, if he was really committed to the law. And so he comes and he says, do not even think for a moment Don't even let it enter your mind. Don't even entertain the idea that I would want to separate you or anyone else from the Old Testament. That's the furthest thing from what I want to do. I did not come to abolish any of this stuff, he says. Once a second, set the record straight. Now, just to be clear... So that you can understand the reason why people were thinking this about Jesus, the reason why they were confused about Jesus' commitment to the Old Testament is because they were confused about what the Old Testament was. They were confused because actually they had replaced or had exalted above God's Word their own traditions. Jesus will confront this later on in Matthew chapter 15. You hypocrites... Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. 
So they misunderstood Jesus because they misunderstood the Old Testament, and they misunderstood the Old Testament because they misunderstood their own sort of traditions. They had layered on top of it, or we might say they had confused their own traditions, their own interpretations, with the actual inspired Scripture. These were rabbinic instructions, rabbinic traditions, which even to today still dominate Judaism. They're found in the Talmud, and particularly that section of the Talmud known as the Mishnah, the first half of the Talmud, the oral traditions, which date back to very ancient times, and in fact, were in the time of Christ, they were still oral. They were passed down orally from one generation to another. They wouldn't, in fact, be written down for about 150 years after the time of Christ. So they were, they were passed down in, in sort of this uh, fashion of rote memory. And because of that, they had to be repeated time and time and time and time and time again in order to faithfully pass them down. And because of that constant repetition, they wound up taking a place of prominence and a place of uh, importance in the mind of the Jewish, uh, in the Jewish mind that in many cases far exceeded Scripture and created confusion for the average Jew. It became sort of their focus as they thought about the Word of God. And so when they saw Jesus disregarding all of this oral tradition, they made the conclusion that Jesus must be trying to undermine the Scripture. He must be trying to undermine the Old Testament because He didn't enter into all of the debates about all of their oral laws, but they misunderstood. They misunderstood Jesus because they misunderstood and misinterpreted the Old Testament, and they misunderstood and misinterpreted the Old Testament because it was layered on top of with all of their oral traditions. So people then misunderstood, just like people today, misunderstand Jesus' relationship to the Old Testament. They made accusations about him then, just like they make accusations about him today, that somehow he was against the Old Testament. He wanted to separate people from the Old Testament. But Jesus wants to lay down in no uncertain terms. There is no way, he says, that I came to abolish any of that. If he wants to abolish anything, it's their oral traditions. And in large part, that's what he goes after in verse 21 when he begins to make a series of contrasts. You have heard that it was said to those of old. That is their oral tradition. In verse 22, but I say to you. And then Jesus gives his faithful exposition of the Old Testament law. He'll do it again and again and again all the way through the rest of Matthew chapter 5, and even as you get into chapter 6, he'll begin to deal with broader theological themes that go beyond the law itself and begin to deal with themes out of the prophets. But all of this is focused on a faithful exposition, a faithful instruction in the law. These Jews, however, because of poor teaching because of a poor understanding of the law themselves, because of a weak understanding of the Old Testament itself, because of all of these things, because they just simply didn't understand God's Word, they looked at Jesus as somehow undermining it, as somehow being separated from it. And so he's trying to correct all of that. Don't even think for a moment that I would abolish 
any of that. In fact, he adds to it to to make it clear, not only do I not abolish the law and the prophets, but truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one iota, not one dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. The iota was the smallest or is the smallest uh, letter in the Greek alphabet. And uh, most people assume that uh, this in its original uh, Hebrew or Aramaic, Jesus as a Jew speaking to other Jews was probably speaking in uh, Hebrew or Aramaic. When he was speaking to them, he wasn't speaking to them about the, the Greek alphabet. He was speaking to them about the Hebrew alphabet. The, uh, Matthew translates it because he's writing in Greek to the Greek. But in the original context, Jesus was probably talking about the Hebrew letter Yod, which is just a tiny little uh, corner mark, almost like an apostrophe that you see in Hebrew script. And so he's, he's, he's telling us that this tiny little dot, if you will, this little iota or, or this little stroke, that's the second word, kariah, literally means a horn. It probably refers to what we would call a seraph, which is just a little stroke that ends off a line when you make a letter. Maybe very similar to what we see in the top left corner of our letter M or our letter N, just a tiny little portion of a, of a stroke of a letter, tiny little horn that you could hard, that you would easily miss, I should say, if you're not paying attention. Jesus is saying none of those things, not one of the tiniest little strokes of any of that stuff will be undone, abolished, done away with, or any of it. The most unnoticeable part of the Old Testament will not pass away. It will remain. It'll remain viable. It'll remain authoritative. It'll remain profitable. It'll remain instructive. It will remain. And when he says that, he's not talking about it remaining simply as some artifact. He's not saying it's just some relic to be put on display in a museum case somewhere. It's not something that be examined by historians uh, for a, a peek, if you will, into a bygone era, some sort of, uh, sort of academic, uh, academically interesting study, but really irrelevant to the rest of us because Jesus clarifies down in verse 17 what he's talking about. When he says it's not going to pass away, what he means is that none of its commandments will be relaxed. What he means is that we're supposed to teach it. And not only are we supposed to teach it, we're supposed to do it, he says. We're supposed to teach it, we're supposed to do it, we're supposed to encourage other people to do it. This is what he means when none of it's going to go away. This is what he means when he says he intends to abolish none of it. Now we could just step back for a moment and reflect on the fact that for Jesus, this is an incredibly high view of Scripture, an incredibly high view of the Bible, a profound reverence for the written Word of God. He doesn't look at it as some sort of outmoded, outdated, old-fashioned, archaic piece of literature. You understand that in Jesus' own time, the Scripture, some parts of the Scripture were already 1,400 years old. 
Now you come to our time, they're 2,400 years old, but it really doesn't matter. For Jesus, it didn't matter how old it was. What mattered was how enduring it is. And he tells us exactly what he thinks about that. He says that this, this scripture is going to stand the test of time. In fact, he has two time horizons that he gives here. Two time horizons marked out by the word until. First of all, it's going to stand until the heavens and the earth pass away. That's a little phrase that basically means the end of time. Because everything that you and I see in terms of the heavens and the earth, the universe and everything in it, it has a definite end. The scripture tells us that God is going to melt down, he says in 2 Peter chapter 3. He's going to destroy the heavens and the earth that is visible to you and I and replace it with a new heavens and a new earth that will last for eternity. So everything that we see, everything that's tangible to us right now, it has a shelf life, if you will. But Jesus says that God's word is going to outlast even that. Not only is it not obsolete in his own time, he didn't see it as ever becoming obsolete. It's never going to lose its relevance. It's never going to lose its value. It's never going to lose its authority. It's never going to reach a time where it no longer has accuracy and truthfulness or any of those things. Not one part of it, not one stroke, not one dot of it will ever fade away in the mind of of Christ. Secondly, he says it's going to remain, it's going to remain all until it is accomplished, or until it is all accomplished, I should say. So instead of passing away, in fact, every bit of it, he says, is going to come true. Every part of it, every prediction, everything that's stated in there, every bit of it will be proven to be true. It's all going to be accomplished. Now, this is very similar to what he says at the end of verse 17 about him fulfilling the law and the prophets. And it kind of takes us to the other side of the ledger. On the, on the negative side, he says, don't think for a second that I've come to separate you from any of this. Don't think for a second that I've come to abolish any of this. On the positive side, he's saying, in fact, I have come to fulfill it. I've come to fulfill it. Now, this is an important phrase. Uh, It's an important word, really, as it relates to the Old Testament. It's used frequently in relation to the Old Testament. And we've already seen it uh, and looked at it in detail back in Matthew chapter 2, this word fulfilled. Fulfilled. It's the word plerao, uh, an important and frequent word in the Greek New Testament, that basically, in its most basic sense... It means to fill something up, normally to fill up a kind of container, whether it's to fill it up with liquid or to fill it up with grain or whatever it might be. It even talks in some cases, you'll find it used in reference to people being filled. They're filled with emotions, they're filled with anger, they're filled with, with uh, love. Or in Romans 15, 14, they're filled with knowledge. It's even used to speak about being filled with the Holy Spirit. But all of that has this this notion of a container and something being filled to the brim. But that's not the only idea behind this word, even if it might be the main idea. It's not the only idea. 
But the, because it also has the idea of completion, of, uh, of bringing something to its full, complete end. It's used, for example, in, in language speaking about time, time coming to an end or time being complete or a period of time passing. And it's a major word as you look not only in, gospel, in the Gospel of Matthew, it's a major word as you look throughout Scripture as it relates to the Old Testament. Now, when we hear the word fulfilled, we normally think of predictive prophecy. We normally think of something foretold about the future in some level of detail, and then those details coming to pass just like it's foretold. But in fact, that's not the only way that the word is used. In fact, I would venture to say it's not the primary way that the word is used in the New Testament. It would be secondary. This word, really, as it relates to the Old Testament, is primarily speaking of things that are completed. For example, uh, not particularly in relation to the Old Testament, but you can hear this sense, first of all, in Romans 15, 19, when Paul talks about his own ministry, how he wanted to preach Christ where he had not been named. And he says, from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, he's not saying that someone predicted the route that he would take, but rather he's saying he had a kind of a plan, he had a kind of an itinerary, and he started out in Jerusalem, and he was able to complete the itinerary. He was able to fulfill the itinerary in exactly the way that he planned to fulfill the itinerary. You see the same meaning at the end of Colossians chapter 4, when Paul, writing to the Colossian church, urges them, he says, Say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry you have received from the Lord. In other words, see that you fulfill, see that you accomplish, see that you complete the task that has been entrusted to you by the Lord. There again, you hear the idea of completion. Or 2 Thessalonians 1, where Paul says, We're praying for you that our God may make you worthy of His calling and may fulfill every resolve for good. Same word, plerao. In other words, you resolved to do something for good and we're praying that God would allow you to complete what you resolved. To do it fully, in other words. So the idea of completing something is prominent in the use of this word. It's like a, like a race when it has been, has been begun and uh, someone is just coming out of the starter blocks, but they have laps to go. And Jesus is saying that the Old Testament is going to be completed. All of the laps are going to be run. In fact, he says, I'm going to do it. I'm going to bring it to completion. This is is the language that's used, as I said, throughout Scripture, particularly as it relates to the Old Testament. You can look, uh, for example, at Galatians 5, I think one of the better places where you can hear something like this, where Paul says the whole law, that is the whole Old Testament law, is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
Now, he's speaking about the law. And normally, we don't think about the law as something that is predictive prophecy. We think about the law as giving commandments, maybe prohibitions. The law doesn't necessarily predict anything about the future. And yet, Paul is saying that the law is fulfilled. It's fulfilled in some other way than prediction and fulfillment. What he's saying is that the law is fulfilled in the sense that it had a purpose. It had a mission. The mission or the purpose of the law is completed when people understand the true manifestation of love. So when you love, Paul says, you have fulfilled the purpose of the law. When you love, you have found the purpose of the law. You found the mission of the law. You've completed the work that the law was intended to accomplish. The whole law is fulfilled In one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. If you have your Bibles, you can turn with me over to James chapter 2 because you see the same thing in the way that James uses the word fulfilled. In James chapter 2, James is talking about Abraham and particularly his offering up of Isaac. And you see in verse 22, you see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. The word is teleos. His faith was completed by his works. Verse 23, and scripture was fulfilled, plerao. Scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So what's James saying? What he's saying is, on one hand, the faith of Abraham was completed, or the faith of Abraham was brought to its final goal by the works of Abraham. When in Genesis 22, he obeyed God even to the point of offering up his own son Isaac as a sacrifice. This was the purpose, or one of the purposes, we might say, one of the missions, one of the purposes of his faith, which is to make him a new creature in God's grace and to make him fully trust what God says, everything that God says. And so you had faith, and then you had faith brought to completion. On the other hand, he says in verse 23, Scripture itself was fulfilled or was completed. At which point he quotes from Genesis 15, 6, a passage that isn't prophetic. It isn't talking about the future. It isn't predictive. And yet James says it was fulfilled when Abraham offered up his son. Well, you say, in what way was it fulfilled? It was fulfilled in the sense that it was brought to pass. It was fulfilled in the sense that there was sort of an anticipation that when Abraham believed in God in Genesis 15, 6, it meant that he would obey God in whatever God said after that. Scripture was fulfilled because in one sense you could say in Genesis 15, 6, in one sense you could see the raw material when in Genesis 22 you can see the completed product. Abraham then becomes a prototype for James, a prototype of what every true believer is in the sense that he obeys all of God's words, whatever God says, and James can say, therefore, faith without works is dead. 
Abraham is the completed product. Abraham is what faith is whenever it's brought to completion, whenever it's fulfilled. Not that there's prediction and fulfillment, but we might say it this way. There is design and fulfillment. Design and fulfillment. And so as you read throughout the New Testament, you find the New Testament speaking about the Old Testament fulfilled in this same kind of way. Whether it's the writer of Hebrews speaking about the Old Testament sacrificial system, or speaking about the Old Testament Levitical priesthood, or speaking about uh, someone like Melchizedek. And none of those things are necessarily looking into the future. None of those things are necessarily predicting something that will happen hundreds, if not thousands of years down the road. They're not predictive in that sense. But according to Scripture, they all establish raw material. They all establish, you might say, a kind of a design that finds its ultimate completion in Christ. It's fulfilled in Christ. Now, when you come to the book of Matthew, Matthew uses the word in a very similar kind of a way. And particularly, you remember this back in chapter 2 when we were looking at that in detail. We were looking at all these all these statements out of the Old Testament when Matthew was saying this was to fulfill what was written in. This was to fulfill what the Scripture said. And one of them, you remember at the very end of Matthew 2, that was this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophets when they said he will be called a Nazarene. And of course, people have searched in vain because nowhere in the Old Testament does it ever say that Jesus is going to be called a Nazarene, someone from Nazareth. Why does it say that? Well, partly because there was no city called Nazareth in the Old Testament. It didn't exist. No one could be called a Nazarene. But of course, you pay closer attention. He's not even talking about a single prophecy. He uses the plural. This is what was spoken about by the prophets. So it's not a specific scripture that says any of this, but rather he's talking about a basic pattern, a basic design which was established by the prophets and brought to completion in Christ. Now, when we come back to Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, I think all of this helps us to understand what Jesus is saying. He's telling us, I didn't come to abolish the Old Testament. I didn't come to do away with the Old Testament. I didn't come to separate you from the Old Testament. I came, he says, to complete the design of the Old Testament. I came to take the raw material that was there in the Old Testament and to bring out the final product that was intended to be brought out by it. And here, in fact, you can never really understand the final product without understanding the design. If you, if you have something like an automobile, unless you made the thing and understand all the parts in your own mind, you can't really understand that automobile without your manual, right? You have something that's not working, you open up your manual, it gives you some insight into the way that the mechanics of that Uh, automobile are designed and so you can try to figure out why this part isn't working maybe because this other part over here is working but the only way you can understand the final product is by understanding the design and so Jesus is telling us here that he came in order to complete the design 
But all that, of course, means that if you want to understand the product, if you want to understand the end result, if you want to participate in that, we would even say, then the Old Testament is necessary. It is necessary. The prophets and the law are necessary if you ever are going to understand Christ. You can appreciate it from the outside. You can appreciate the sort of shiny, glossy cover from the outside. But if you really want to understand Christ, and if you really want to understand what products He's trying to produce, if you really want to understand all of that stuff, then you're going to have to have the design. You're going to have to have the Old Testament. Which is what Jesus affirms in verse 18. Truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one iota, not one dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. All of it. All of it, he says. In fact, he couldn't be more clear. You can't chop it up. You can't take, you know, I I like the Psalms. I like to read the Psalms. They kind of comfort my heart in the morning. But all that other stuff I'm going to get rid of. You know, I like some portions about the Old Testament. I like to read this particular prophet. And I like what he says. But all that other stuff about all the law and all that, I, don't, I just don't like all that stuff. Or you know what? There are some things that I consider are moral, and I'm going to hold on to the moral elements. There are some things that I think maybe are just more ceremonial, and I'm just going to get rid of all that stuff. You can't do that. Jesus says you can't. It's not supposed to be chopped up. He says, no, not one single stroke, not one little dot, not any of it is going to pass away. You can't pick and choose which parts you want. The whole thing has to be held on to because the whole thing is going to be accomplished, he says. And so to understand the final product, to understand the way that's being accomplished, to understand how all of it's going to work out, you have to have the complete manual, the whole design behind it. All the raw material. All the parts. This, by the way, isn't talking about his own life. Jesus is saying, you know, it's not going to stand just until the time of the cross. It's not going to stand just until the time of the resurrection. All of it's going to come to pass. All of it's going to be accomplished. There are parts of it that were accomplished in Christ's first coming. There are parts of it that are going to be accomplished in His second coming. But all of it is necessary to understand all of the work of Christ, the complete and total work of Christ, not to mention the complete and total work that God wants to do through Christ in you. Now, this has profound implications. Profound implications for the way that you read your Bible. Profound implications for the way that you have your quiet time. Profound implications for the importance of preaching the New Testament and the Old Testament. Profound implications for the kind of things that we hold to and the things we believe about the Scripture. has profound implications for the way that you live and how you understand how to live. Because the importance of the Old Testament in defining our understanding of Christ, our understanding of the Christian life, 
our understanding of how we worship God, the, the place and the importance of the Old Testament is categorically affirmed across the board by Christ. And then he wants to explain to us how that impacts us, which is what he gets into in verses 19 and 20, the Christian and the law, which will be our focus when we, Lord willing, come back together next week. Father, we're grateful for bringing us, you bringing us to this passage, you reminding us of these truths. To the extent that we in any way have neglected the Old Testament, that we've taught other people to neglect the Old Testament, we pray that you would forgive us. We understand what Christ has said. We understand that he didn't come to abolish any of it. We understand that all of it will stand and be accomplished. We understand that it all points to Christ. With that, Lord, I pray that you would teach us, teach us the design, show us the raw material, help us to understand the work that you want to do, not only through Christ, but in us, by teaching us the Old Testament as well as the New. We're so grateful for both of them, so thankful that you gave us an enduring and lasting truth in the Scripture, and may it have its perfect way in us. Lord, we pray that not only from this time today, but our time, if Christ tarries, our time next week, as we come together, teach us how to properly read your scripture. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.